On June 16, 1858, Abraham Lincoln gave what was to be probably one of his most memorable speeches. As he stood in the state capital of Illinois' uh, uh, capital building in the rotunda, he stood and delivered a speech in the midst of a war that was immediate. A, a war that was to break this country apart. The country had been thrown into a state of chaos and confusion, centered around a division over slavery and over states' rights. And Lincoln gave this memorable speech as a reminder of the need for unity. He wrote, or spoke, A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. I do not expect the union to be a dissolve. I do not expect the house to fall, but I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other. Either the opponents of slavery will arrest the further spread of it and place it where the public mind shall rest in the belief that it is the course of ultimate extinction, or its advocates will push it forward till it shall become lawful in all the states, old as well as new, north as well as south. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Uh, memorable words probably to many of us that have heard them before. But Lincoln, though speaking to a nation that was divided over evil, over the evil of slavery, reminds us of the need and the necessity of unity. And that's what we're going to think about today in God's Word. The need for unity among God's people. Last week we considered in Jesus' address to His disciples the need for humility. That among the disciples of Jesus there needs to be a marked humility. A humility that seeks the, the, the best of others rather than themselves. As the disciples sought to be the greatest, Jesus came and informed them what true greatness really looks like. And in our world today, true greatness is seen on stepping on the shoulders of others, uh, maybe perhaps stabbing others in the back in order to get what we want. Greatness in our world is seeing ourselves benefited and others going without. But Jesus says that true greatness is giving ourselves in humiliation and in service for others. Service, Jesus said, grows out of a love for others. And it's on the heels of this conversation about greatness and about the need for humility that Jesus gives further instruction on not only the need for humility, but the need also for unity among the disciples. Among God's people, there is to be a marked uh, unity among them, a, a laying aside of our own personal desires and wants and seeing that the, the whole is benefited rather than the individual. That's what we're going to consider today. In God's Word. So I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 and verse 38. If you're using one of our Black Pew Bibles, it's page 845. If you're not used to looking at a Bible, the large numbers are the chapter numbers and the small numbers are verse numbers. And we're going to be, just kind of look at your eyes on page 845 uh, to verse 38. 38, 38. John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, 
For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For truly I, for the one excuse me, who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. The point of this passage and what I hope to see is the point of this sermon is that Christians are to strive for unity reflected in our desire to give glory to God in our work to serve others in the name of Christ. So Christians are to give themselves to strive for unity and this unity will be reflected in our desire our growing desire to give glory to God and not ourselves as we serve others in the name of Christ. First, notice that pride and jealousy floods from a heart that is intolerant. Notice first that pride and jealousy flows out of an intolerant heart. John comes to Jesus, says, Teacher, we saw someone doing something that we don't approve of. We saw someone doing something in your name that we don't quite approve of. And so we tried to stop him. Notice first their motive to stop him. Mark tells us that they tried to stop him because he was not following us. Notice here that John says that, hey, this guy wasn't following us. Not you, but us. He wasn't following us. He wasn't doing, he's not a part of our group. And we might look at this and begin to think, you know, this is quite reasonable. I mean, Christianity was new. Jesus is just beginning at this time to amass his first followers. Jesus has only been in ministry for maybe two and a half years now, maybe three years at this point. And so this is all relatively new. And, and the disciples respond, maybe, maybe naturally, maybe we can see that, that this makes sense, you know, that they come and say, hey, you know, we just want to protect your name, Jesus. This guy, he's, he's running around town, he's telling people that, that he's, he's one of your followers. And, you know, we just don't have, we don't, there's not accountability, we don't really know him. You know. But that doesn't seem to be what the motive was. Because the way they say it and the way they, they're trying to stop him, uh, what, John, what John is saying is that, hey, you know, really the problem here is our pride. Really the problem with John and the other disciples was this guy was doing something they couldn't do. If you remember a few weeks ago, Jesus' disciples were trying to cast out a demon from a little boy. And they were unable. They were the laughing stock of town. The, the scribes were pointing fingers at them, laughing at them, making fun of them, deriding them, saying, Ha, see, we told you that you have no power. Your, your rabbi has no ability to free people from the bondages of Satan and sin. And, and it's on the heels of this that John and his disciples come and try to stop someone that's doing the exact same thing they couldn't do. What we see here is that they were jealous of this man's success. Success in something that they rather saw defeat in. This is the irony of this whole passage. is to see that, that what they fail at, this, this unnamed disciple succeeds at. And they can't have it. They're like, if you will, uh, Joshua in Numbers chapter 11. 
Now in Numbers chapter 11, Moses and, and, and uh, the rest of the nation of Israel are in the midst of, of a bit of turmoil. There, there's some sin going among them. And God pours out his spirit upon 70 elders and they begin to, to prophesy. And then the prophecy stops. But then Ildad and Medad begins to, to prophesy and Joshua gets upset. Joshua gets jealous that he does not see this kind of evidence of God in his life. And so Moses went out and told the people the word of the Lord, and he gathered 70 men of elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. So they stopped. All right. And this is just a helpful illustration of exactly kind of what, what's going on here. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Ildad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but those who had not gone out to the tent. And so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Ildad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. So just like the disciples Stop this man from casting out demons. So, so Joshua comes and says, hey, we, we need to stop this. We need to get rid of this. This is, this is foreign. This is weird. This is not normal. We shouldn't have this going on around us. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. What Joshua's problem was is the same problem that the disciples faced here. They could not see God move among someone else. They could not stand the fact to see revival go on at the church down the street and not their church. They were jealous. They were jealous not for God, but for their own glory. But who was this man? Who was this man? Look with me in verse 38. Who was this man? We're told two things about him. First, we are told that this man was casting out demons. This man was casting out demons. Now, what this means is that God was working through this man. God was somehow working through him for his own glory and for his own name. God gave this man success in his work. And just a reminder here that God does not work through Satan. The Bible's very clear about that. Jesus has already dealt with that when the scribes and Pharisees are blaming Jesus for or, or basically saying that Jesus, your power is because you follow Satan, because you're one of Satan's demons. That's why you have power and the ability to cast out demons. And Jesus clarifies that and he says, No, no, that's not possible. Secondly, notice that this man worked for God's glory. We're told that he was casting out demons in your name or in Jesus' name. That is, that this man was doing this work not for his own glory, but for the glory of Christ alone. He was not doing it in the name of this, you know, Jim. I'm doing it in Jim's name, or Bob's name, or Steve's name. 
No, he was doing it in Jesus' name for Jesus' glory. He was giving credit to whom credit is due. He was pointing to who the power really was coming from. It wasn't him. It was Jesus. It was, it was because Jesus was working through him for his own glory. And friends, we can face this same temptation in our lives. We can face the temptation of tribalism and traditionalism in our own midst. The question is, is what motivates us to be intolerant of other Christians? What is it that causes us to think that God can't work through other Christians? And in our context, non-Southern Baptists. Why do we think that God can only work through the SBC? And if you're not, if you're sort of visiting with us today and you're not Southern Baptist, you know, you, you may feel a little bit of this. You, maybe you grew up non-Southern Baptist. Southern Baptists have a particular problem with numbers. They have a sickness about numbers. They're obsessed with them. They're obsessed with putting them out, publicizing them. Look how many we have? This is a little reminder. Numbers do not mean success. Just because you draw a crowd together doesn't mean you're doing something good. There's a lot of crowds drawn in this world today that aren't about good things. Just because we can draw a crowd, amass a crowd together, does not necessarily mean that God is working through us. And one of the issues among us is our, our, our obsession over these numbers, and particularly baptisms. As if we can manufacture God's work of converting sinners to saints. We can't. There's nothing you can do except share the good news of Christ. God is the one who works. And what happens, though, is that we tend to think that no good can be done in the world unless our party or our denomination does it. Unless our group does it, it can't be done. And I wonder, do we have the possibility in our minds that God can actually work through other groups of people? That God can actually do these things? Are we willing to continue to pray week in and week out for the churches in our community that preach the gospel, that believe the Bible, and, and then also rejoice when we see revival come to that, that church and not this church? Can we, can we trust the fact that God may work in the church down the street and not this church? Can we rejoice in that? Can we rejoice to see revival done among the churches around us and we are empty? Just praying for revival and seeing it pop up all around us. We want to fight against tribalism against us, among us. Tribalism is that thinking that it, only our tribe, only the SBC is the only, is the only way. Only God works through Baptists. It's just not true. J.C. Ryle, writing about 150 years ago in England, wrote, Better a thousand times that the work be done by other hands than not done at all. What do we care more about? That we do the work or that the work is done? That God is glorified through seeing sinners come to faith in Christ? Do we trust? Do we rejoice in the work that God is doing even among your Christian co-workers. As they tell you about how their churches are thriving. And about how their, 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 their pews are full every week. Do you get a little jealous of that? 
Do you get bitter about that? Do you get upset and cry and whine and wonder, God, why aren't you doing that here in our midst? Friends, if we are focused on the wrong things, we will tend to give ourselves to the wrong things. If our focus is on numbers, well, then what we'll do is we will give ourselves to things that will manufacture numbers. When our focus is on just growing a crowd, well, then you know what will happen? Is we'll just do things to draw crowds. But God does not work that way. What about traditions? How does the sin that we see here in John and the disciples speak to our traditions? We've always done it that way. Is that not what John is saying here? Hey, this guy's not doing it the way we do it. And clearly the way they did it failed. But this guy was seeing success. And they couldn't have that. Even though they, he was seeing success, it was the, perhaps the way that he was doing it that most upset them. We conclude that because it isn't our way, there's no way at all. Brothers and sisters, we must resist that lie. To believe that God only works in one way, and that has to be our way. That it's just not true. To think that God can only work the way we've seen Him work in the past is to deny God's glory in the present and to see that God can still work among His people. Do not believe that God cannot work in new ways. That God cannot touch lives in new ways. We need the Spirit of Moses here where we say all Israel prophesied. Were it be that all were prophesying in His name rather than seeing it only our way. We need to go to the cross and lay down the idol of self. That's what we need to do. We need to go to the cross and we need to lay down our idol, which we all have. We may tuck it away in our pockets. We may keep it at home sometimes. But I guarantee you pull it out every day of your life and it's the idol of you. And every time you go to that mirror and you look and you bow down to yourself, you live for yourself. You live for your own pleasures, your own desires. You rule your house. You, you, you go to your, your idol and you say, it is my way or the highway. I know better than anyone else, you say. I know what will fix this church. I know what will fix that person. I know what they need. And all along you see what you're worshiping is you. All you're seeking to do is give glory to your name and not God's name. Friends, brothers and sisters, Jesus paid for our sin of tradition and tribalism. The sin of traditionalism, Jesus paid for that sin. And we can know that we can cry out to Him today and confess, God, forgive me for that sin. Forgive me that I have sinned against You, that I have found uh, myself worshiping You rather than, worshiping me rather than You. Brothers and sisters, Christ will not be rivaled by You. This is why He came and died 
that he might defeat you and that his name might be glorified. When the Bible says that every tribe, tongue, and nation will bow before his throne, he means you. He means you will bow before him. That in the end, you will submit yourself to him. Willingly or unwillingly, you will bow before him. And friends, marriage tends to be that place where traditionalism rises to the top. I remember as a young married guy, one of the first things that I would uh, encounter are my wife's family traditions versus my family traditions. And and if you've been married long, you know that that oftentimes early on in marriage, that's collide. We don't do it that way, you know. And we don't do it that way in my family, you know. And then we respond, well, your family is just stupid. They don't know what to do, you know. Well, if you're, we have a few new married folks here. Just first lesson, don't call your family, uh, wife's family stupid, all right? First lesson, don't do that. Um, second, understand that traditions are at work. Understand them. Understand what's at work, what, what's behind those things. And, and what it does, it causes us to evaluate our own lives, to say, you know what? Is this just personal preference? Is this just tradition? Like, I've just always done it this way, so that's the way I'm always going to do it? We have to work to expose those things and seek to find unity among us. Now, you, someone may be here today just be like, whoa, this inclusive language is used in our culture and in a sinful way. To be inclusive or, intoler- or to be tolerant, you know, is that what, what, what you're saying? No. Are there boundaries in sort of the way God works? Oh, most clearly. God works in particular ways. So, for example, when it comes to, 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 to conversion, does God work in various means? No. The Bible's very clear. Paul says that it is through the hearing of the gospel that one is saved. So it's through the preaching of God's word. That is the means of grace. That's why we gather together every week to hear God's word preached. Because that is the means by which God is building up the body of Christ. By which God is calling sinners to faith in him. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing through the word of Christ. But one of the things we want to notice here about this man is that this man was not doing evil. That this man was doing good. And so sort of two boundary questions we could ask is, is first, do we see evidence of God at work in them? So when we, when we assess other denominations or other groups of Christians, do we see God at work? We see in this man that this man was having success casting out demons. It was, there was evidence in his life that God was working through him. So we want to think, is there evidence, is there fruit of the Spirit in the lives of these Christians that we see around us. And secondly, we want to ask the question, do they work for their glory or for the glory of God? So if they're working for their own glory, then we can clearly say they're not working for God's glory, therefore they're not being godly, rather they're working for evil. But if they're working for God's glory, for His great name, then we can conclude this see that, hey, this is good. We want to fellowship with them. Now, we may have disagreements on tertiary things like baptism or the Lord's Supper, 
We may have, you know, subtle differences, but the, but the key is this. Is there some core doctrinal things that we can trust in, that we can see, and therefore? So, for example, the churches I pray for on Sunday mornings weekly are churches who preach God's Word, who believe the Bible is true, inherent, inspired, infallible, clear. They believe the gospel that we believe as revealed in God's Word. Now, we may have differences. For example, we prayed for Cedric and his church. Now, Cedric and I had some great fruitful conversations over why I think their polity and church structure is not helpful and why it's, at points, not biblical. But that doesn't mean that we can't sit down and have a meal together and talk about God's glory and, and to see his name spread here among the lost in our community. But that's to differentiate between those who do not believe the same gospel who do not preach Christ and Him crucified, justification by faith alone and not by any works, acts of contrition or penance. We do not believe that, and therefore we differentiate ourselves. We still pray. God will give wisdom to those groups. But again, we want to see that the commonality, the unity that we're going to talk about next is founded upon the gospel of Jesus Christ and Him alone. Let's move there. Let's move to the sort of second point. In the sermon, unity is a necessary mark of genuine Christians. Unity is a necessary mark of genuine Christians. In verses 39 through 41, Jesus gives us three reasons why we as Christians must fight for unity. So three reasons why we as Christians must fight for unity. First, our labor for the glory of God produces holiness and not evil. Jesus says, do not stop him, for the one who does a mighty work in my name will, will, be able, will not be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. So what, what Jesus is saying here is that those who labor for God's glory produce holiness in their lives, not evil. They, they produce God-likeness, not Satan-likeness. They, they don't work uh, both out of one side of their mouth for Satan and the other side of their mouth for evil or for, for good. Rather, those who are genuinely laboring for the glory of God seek His good among the world. And sin is means to distort and destroy God's kingdom. Just to be clear, that's what sin is about. Sin's ultimate goal is to distort and destroy the glory of God and His creation. That's what we see in the Garden of Eden. That's what's happening there in the Garden is that Satan is tempting Adam and Eve to distort God's glory. To change God's glory into man's glory. To, to, to be focused on self rather than on God. Eat the tree and you'll be like God. The focus of their endeavors was ultimately to see their glory manifested among the world. Uh, we have been created in the image of God. We have been branded to reflect His glory and not our own. And in sin, we cannot stand it. We cannot stand every time we look in the mirror and we see the glory of God reflected back at us. We hate it. We hate when we go out into the world and we see God's glory around us. And so what do we do? We try to point it to other things. We say, well, this was the evolutionary thing. You know, there's not really God. We point to things that, that seek to, to minimize God in creation. Because what we want most is our names to be glorified. We want every bit of this creation to reflect our glory, not God's glory. 
This is why we want to see success in our own families. Because we want to go to our coworkers, or our, our other friends, and we want to say, hey, you know, my family's got it all together. You know, I, my family, none of them have gone to jail. Uh, all my family's good. They're not on drugs. They're not drinking. You know, they, they live good lives and all these things that we, we, we go around in. And in pride, what we care most about is not God's glory in our families. We want to see our glory among others. But God does not allow our rebellion to continue. God, in His grace, does not allow us to continue in rebellion against Him. This is why He sent His Son, that He might come and defeat our rebellious ways. That He might give us, through Christ alone, a new way. And He sent His Son, Jesus, to restore this world. To restore that which we have sought to destroy. The second reason Jesus gives is that we are at war. Therefore, we must know the real enemy. Look what he says in verse 40. For the one who is not against us is for us. The language Jesus is using here is that we are at war. As Christians, we are in a big war. A war in which Satan is seeking to destroy God's glory. We once were a part of that team. We wanted to see God's glory destroyed. But now we are working for God. And that we have entered into a cosmic war between Satan and God by which God will be victorious. And therefore we must seek God's glory. But we have to recognize who the real enemy is. It isn't other Christians. But that's what we do. We turn our attention to other Christians. And we attack them. And we belittle them. And we say God can't work through you. Paul faced a similar temptation in the Philippian church. Paul writes, to be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and strife, but others out of a good will. These do so out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, seeking to cause me anxiety in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Just that in every way, whether out of a false motive or true, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Now to be clear, Paul was not dealing with a gospel issue here. What, was, what the problem was there in Philippi and among the churches surrounding Philippi was people struggled with Paul being in prison. They struggled with the fact that how can God be at work in Paul if he's in prison all the time? Clearly, Paul's doing something wrong. And so they, had a, they were kind of embarrassed by Paul, you know? Kind of embarrassed, like, uh, yeah, I don't want to associate with him. He, the guy's in prison all the time. I mean, you know, just like us today probably don't want to, you know, be running around town. Oh, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm my best friend, he, you know, he's up at the state penitentiary. We, we hang out often, you know. We don't run around, you know, because we're like, you know, kind of embarrassed by that. Well, that's true here. And what Paul is saying is, is that ultimately it doesn't matter if these men are offended by me. They preach Christ and him crucified. Christ is proclaimed in this. I rejoice. Adrian Rogers, a pastor in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, deceased, passed away in 05. Many of you may know him from his radio ministry. Adrian warned that after the SBC was won back from liberalism in the 1980s, 
that what we would do, because we had been so intense at fighting against the evil of liberalism, that we would come home from the war and begin to fight with one another. And that's exactly what happened. Danny Aiken, writing about Dr. Rogers, wrote, Dr. Rogers said the problem was that we were no longer on the battlefield fighting shoulder to shoulder, the real enemy of sin, Satan, death, and hell. Rather, we were back in the barracks, standing face to face and fighting one another. We were now squabbling and arguing over things that would matter little if we were out on the battlefield engaged in the real enemy as we fought for the souls of men across North America and around the world. And Dr. Rogers was completely right. That's exactly what happened and is happening today. Among the SBC, there is this continual battle over Calvinism or those that are neo-Calvinist or non-Calvinist or whatever you call yourself. And so what happens is because labels are most important, people like myself feel almost not welcome in the SBC because of my beliefs who I believe to be biblical, but yet what a denomination seeks to belittle them, make them feel unwelcome. Yet, just a cursory understanding of the history of the SBC, you'll begin to see that both groups, Calvinist and non-Calvinist, have coexisted from the beginning. Because what we find together is that when we work together for the glory of God, God does great things. That our primary goal has been to see the lost one to Christ, not get in debates on theology. Brothers and sisters, we must be cautious to think that, oh, because he's not pre-trib or because he is an amillennialist or because he's this, that, or the other. And friends, this is what we do, isn't it? We stand face to face in the barracks fighting one another, debating on colors of carpets and ceilings and all these other things that really do they really matter eternally for the souls what matters most? Lost souls coming to faith in Christ, those that we rescue from the flames of hell, or whether or not we don't have stains on our carpets. What matters more? Well, friends, I can tell you, what matters most is people coming to faith in Christ, not whether our carpets are clean. God cares for souls over these material things. And let us fight to see sinners saved and not our kingdoms built. Thirdly, even the smallest act done for the glory of Christ is rewarded in the kingdom of God. He says here in verse 41, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Now, now, the gift of, of water, the, this giving of water, is like the smallest act in, a, in, a, in an Eastern Mediterranean culture. This, is, this, this would have been in Jesus' day, just the most simplest act you could have done. Just like when people come to your home, I bet you ask them, do you want anything to drink? Right? You want a cup of water? Want something to drink? Right? It's just, just a measure, a low measure of hospitality, right? It's the simplest thing you could do. It's almost like shaking someone's hand. It's just simple. And, and what Jesus is saying is, is those who do even the smallest act for God's glory will be re rewarded. That's why we fight for unity because we will be rewarded when we work for God's glory and not our own. Notice the motive he gives for the gift. Because you belong to Christ. 
Because you belong to Christ. Because, because we are brothers and sisters in Christ, we work to reflect unity among us. Do you ever wonder why we, we use those, those words, brother and sister? It ain't because we're from the South. You know, we're everybody brother and sister. No. It's because it's true. We've been united in Christ. We are in a family. We've been adopted by God into his family. And we are now brothers and sisters with Christ. This is why in Ephesians 4, in our scripture reading today, we see that we work towards the unity of the bond of peace. We don't work towards division. We work for unity. And what we want to see most among us is diversity and unity. Because when we are the most diverse, God is glorified in the union in Christ. That is, when we work and see diversity among us, the world sees that and says, there is no reason why this is happening. There's no reason. We can't produce this. How did you do that? How did you produce unity when you have so much diversity? And we say it's because Jesus has bought us with his blood and adopted us into his family. And we are brothers and sisters. And so what runs deeper for us isn't our nationalities. It isn't our our cultural backgrounds. What matters most to us is our common bond in Christ. And we lay all those things aside because in Christ we are one for His glory. Jesus here is radically redefining the motives for our labors. He is pointing to the sin of our own heart and saying, work for my glory, not your own. And God receives great glory when, we, when, he, see, when he works unity among us. The unity of the Trinity is reflected in our own unity. So when we are divided, what we're saying is that God is divided. When we say that, that when we work towards division, what we are saying is that God is working towards division. And this is just not true. And so we count the cost. Brothers and sisters, I just want to remind you, it is costly. It is costly to follow Jesus. It hurts to lay that idol down. It pains us when we don't see our name recognized for the work we've done. It stings when we don't get the pat on the back for the hard labors we've done in life. It stings us when we see our neighbor praised when we did good work too. But what we can trust in is the promise he gives. We work for God's glory knowing that we will be rewarded. You can go without now because you know that you'll have eternally. You can go without the pat on the back and the praises of men because you know eternally your Father will reward you. And you labor towards that reward, that eternal reward that God will give to all those who love Him. And so the reason we fight for unity is because God will reward us for such efforts. For his own glory. Kent Hughes, a former pastor of College Church in Wheaton, wrote, The criterion for ministry is not style or tradition or denomination, but Jesus' name being lifted up and glorified, and we are to rejoice in this. Brothers and sisters, that is what we want to see happen here. We want to see the spirit of Moses in our midst. 
where we can rejoice and celebrate the successes of other Christians and the fruit that God bears in their life. Let us strive for unity. Let's strive to reflect the unity of God in the desire to see His name glorified and not our own as we serve others in the name of Christ. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like a precious oil on the head running down on the beard on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon which falls in the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Do we believe that? Do we trust that it is good and pleasant when brothers and sisters dwell in unity? May it be seen here among us. Let's pray. God, we give you the glory and the praise that your name is due. And we ask that you would help expose the sin of pride, of jealousy. Expose in us the idol of self. And by the blood of Christ, we confess freely that we are forgiven. I pray that you would move us by your spirit to confess, confess our sins to you today. To confess where we live in pride and live in, in selfish ambition. Father, that we would see among us the fruit of unity. We would see that we work for the good of others. We, we seek to give ourselves for others and not ourselves. That we would go without so that someone can go with. We pray to see this among us now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.